This evening, we're kicking off our overview of the Old Testament book titled Ezra. Now, with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. Now, as you're making your way to the first chapter of Ezra, I just want to take a moment to provide you with some introductory information that'll help you to better understand this book. It'll first help you to know that the book of Ezra, it picks up where Second Chronicles left off. Yeah, that's right. It, it picks up with the king of Persia issuing a decree that uh, ended up releasing the Israelites from their time of captivity. And as we make our way through this book, you know, we're going to consider the events that occurred as the Israelites returned uh, from Babylon and, and began to you know, repopulate the land of promise. Now, it's also interesting to note that the book of Ezra includes the, the book of Nehemiah in the ancient Hebrew Bible. That's right, they, they, they were two, uh, the, these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they were one, they're, they're one book in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but then it was, it was about the ninth century when we first began to see the separation of Ezra and Nehemiah in Latin versions of the Old Testament. And by the 13th century, it was standard to find Ezra and Nehemiah presented as two distinct books in the Christian copies of the Old Testament. I should also point out that the book of Ezra does not explicitly identify the name of its author. And yet, according to tradition, it was a scribe and a priest named Ezra who wrote this historical record. And while the first six chapters were written from the perspective of a third person, you know, Ezra then appears on the scene in the seventh chapter of the book. And it's at that point in time when the author uh, of the book then shifts from the third person to the first person. And and this lends some credibility to to the belief that Ezra is actually the author. Uh, Finally, I should take a moment to point out that there are several significant similarities between the days of Ezra and the days in which we live. That's right, there there are significant similarities between the days of Ezra and the days in which we live. For example, Ezra was recording the events that occurred as the children of Israel returned to the land of promise. In similar fashion, listen, it was during the 20th century when Israelites from all over, over the world started returning to the land of promise. Much like those Israelites who rebuilt the temple during the days of Ezra, well, there are many Israelites today now preparing for the construction of a third temple. And knowing that history tends to repeat itself, I believe that there are many lessons that we can learn about this day and age by just considering this historical account. With this as the focus, let's consider Ezra's account, which is found here in Ezra chapter 1. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 1, here Ezra writes, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. I want to stop right here. I want to take a moment to consider this prophetic promise that the Lord presented during the days of Jeremiah. You see, it was through the prophet Jeremiah that he revealed the ministry of Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. Uh, now, with this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in the book of Ezra, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Specifically, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. As you make your way to the 25th chapter of Jeremiah, it'll help you to remember that it was 627 BC when the Lord raised up the prophet Jeremiah to go and rebuke the leaders of Judah. And knowing that the people of Judah would not repent of their sins, well, the Lord led the prophet Jeremiah to inform them about the inevitability of the Babylonian captivity. 
At the same time, the Lord also revealed the the time of their release in the same promise. Uh, Now with this context in mind, if you would look with me here at Jeremiah chapter 25, I want to begin reading there at verse 8. Here Jeremiah writes, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, uh, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. Now, here in these verses we find the Lord, he's presenting the people of Judah with this prophecy about the day when they would be carried away as captives into the land of the Chaldeans. And according to the prophet Jeremiah, they would remain there until 70 years of captivity were completed. Now, in order to understand the reason for why the Lord picked this specific 70-year period of time for their captivity, I want to revisit the reason that Ezra presented in the final chapter of Second Chronicles. If you would, let's just turn back to the book of Ezra. And as you make your way there to Ezra, let's just back up one chapter to the final chapter of Second Chronicles. If you would look with me there at Second Chronicles chapter 36, I want to begin reading there at verse 15. Here Ezra informs us that the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers. That's referring to the prophets. They rose up early and, and, and sent them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Here in these verses, we, we learn here that the Lord was the one who raised up the Chaldeans. He raised up the Chaldeans to come in and conquer the kingdom of Judah and carry away the, the captives. And, and the reason why is because they had been rejecting his word. They, they would not listen to the messengers. They, they mocked the prophets, and, and they would not repent of their wicked ways. And as this continued for many, many years, the Lord finally raised up the Chaldeans to come in and take them to Babylon. 
And according to Ezra here, the Lord had determined to keep them in captivity for 70 years until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. Now I should point out here that it's actually in in Leviticus chapter 25. That's where the Lord commands the Israelites to let their land rest for a year on every seventh year. This was known as the Shemitah. And, And so every seventh year, every Shemitah, they were to allow their land to rest for the entire year. But rather than obeying the word of the Lord, rather than observing the Shemitah every seventh year, the people failed to follow the sabbatical law for at least 490 years. And with that being the case, they owed the Lord 70 Sabbath years. That's what they owed God. They had a covenant with God. They broke the covenant at least 70 times. Therefore, this is the way that the Lord decided to collect the debt, is to send them away into captivity for 70 years until the land enjoyed the Sabbaths that that were due due to the land. And with that, I would just point out that the truth of God's word is going to be fulfilled. And and regardless of whether you are in line with that or not, the promises of God will be accomplished. And, And in light of this truth, we would do well to follow the instructions that James presented in James chapter one. There he encouraged us to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer uh, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Listen, those who follow the inspired instructions of the scriptures are going to enjoy the blessings of their obedience. Conversely, the believer who, you know, who fails to become a doer of God's word, well, they're going to eventually find themselves on the receiving end of the Lord's loving correction according to his promise. That's what the Lord has promised, that he's going to chastise those uh, who won't walk in obedience with him. Now, it's, it's possible that you currently find yourself on the receiving end of the Lord's loving correction. And it might be that, you, that you're not, but, but that you might be living in sin. Listen, if you're living in sin right now, I, I want to guarantee you right now that it's only a matter of time. You know, the Lord allowed the, the Israelites to uh, just ignore the Sabbath, the Shemitah, you know, for 490 years. And then finally came the day when he said, okay, time to collect. Time to make good on the covenant here. And it's possible that that you are living in sin and thinking that you're getting away with it. Well, listen, it's just a matter of time until God comes collecting. It's only a matter of time until he shows up and says, okay, time to pay the debt. It's possible that you currently find yourself, though, in the middle of his loving correction and maybe right now you're being chastised with, with the loving correction of the Lord. He's like a loving father who, who doesn't want us to continue living in sin, so he will chastise us. And if that's where you find yourself tonight, you should know that the Lord is always ready to restore those who will simply repent and return to him. really is that simple. Repent and return to him. And, and those who repent and return to him, well, he promises that he's going to restore us. In order to prove my point, let's consider the way that the Lord raised up King Cyrus to free the people of God 
after the 70 years of their captivity were over. And with this as the focus, let's turn our attention back to the book of Ezra. I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 1. Here Ezra writes, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now here in these verses we find Cyrus, the king of Persia, he's presenting this royal decree, and and it's here in the beginning of this executive order where we find this Persian king, he's informing the world that that he was receiving his marching orders from the Lord God of heaven. Now, and I want to point out here that the word Lord, which is found there in the middle of verse 2, that word Lord is is found in all caps, and what that uh, helps us to see is that the original Hebrew, it's actually what we call the tetragrammaton, which actually includes the, the, the four Hebrew letters YHWH. And just to be clear, these four Hebrew letters constitute the proper name of the one true, true, true God, which is typically transliterated Jehovah or Yahweh. Now there are scholars who, who debate you know, over which of those is, is more accurate. I'm not here to clear that argument up tonight. But regardless of whether you think it's Jehovah or Yahweh, this is based on the Tetragrammaton, which is YHWH, which is then translated into our English version as Lord in all caps. What this means is simply this, that the king of Persia wasn't claiming to be a servant of some spurious you know, Persian deity, and, and he wasn't you know, suggesting that he's receiving his marching orders from one of the false gods there in his land. No, instead he's claiming to be a servant of Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you prefer. He's claiming to be a servant of the creator of heaven and earth, the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And according to this decree, the Lord was leading him to go to, to you know to make it possible for the the rebuilding or the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was located in Judah. And it's for this reason that I'm certain that this is the same Cyrus that the Lord actually mentioned 170 years earlier, before Cyrus even conquered uh, uh, Babylon. It's actually in, in Isaiah chapter 44 where we find the Lord presenting this prophecy. And he, he does this by declaring, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundations shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, and make the crooked places straight, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. Now now remember, this prophecy was written 170 years before King Cyrus rose up and conquered Babylon. And, and while there are those who insist that God doesn't really know the future before it occurs, this is the open theism group, and they think that, well, God learns tomorrow as it comes. Interesting. So he was just a good guesser when it came to Cyrus? (laughs) He was just making a pretty good guess here? Is that it? Yeah, there are those who insist that God really doesn't know the future. He learns the future just as we do. And yet from this we can be sure that the Lord knows the end even from the beginning. The Lord revealed the name of the king who would set his people free 
from their 70-year Babylonian captivity. And he did this, listen, a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity even began. So, so not only was he prophesying and revealing the rise of King Cyrus, but he was also a hundred years prior pointing to the, the day of the Babylonian captivity. Both prophecies came to pass exactly as God had revealed. With that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that we serve a sovereign Savior who knows the end even from the beginning. He's not guessing about tomorrow. He's not predicting the future. He's prophesying the future. It's a big difference. Nostradamus predicts things. And and I think he was about 50% accurate, which just means he was a so-so guesser. God doesn't predict the future. He tells us what's going to happen because he knows the future. Meanwhile, too many in the church are still leaning on their own understanding. Too many Christians are leaning on their own finite wisdom rather than leaning on the Lord who knows tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And and then God gives us the instructions that we have in his word and, and we think we know better. We think we can do it our way and it'll work out well. Trust me when I tell you it won't. Rather than leaning on our own limited understanding, let's look to the wisdom of God's word so that we can follow his divine directions because his directions are the right directions whether we we understand it or not. Now with this as the goal, let's continue to consider the way that the king of Persia was actually obeying the prophetic word of God. Look with me here at Ezra chapter 1. We'll begin again at verse 2. Here again, Cyrus, king of Persia, declares, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Here in these verses, we find this official decree of King Cyrus. That's right. Something King Cyrus wrote ends up in the Bible. I love this. And it's here in this decree where he assures the world that the Lord God of Israel had commanded him God had commanded him to free the descendants of Israel so that they could return and rebuild the temple of God. And he wasn't disobedient. Rather than disobeying the king of kings, King Cyrus moved with faith-based obedience as he released the Israelites from their captivity. He was quick to obey God because he recognized that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the king of kings. Not only that, but he also presented the people of God with the prophetic word of God by instructing them to return to the land of promise and rebuild the house of the Lord there in Jerusalem according to God's command. In this way, we can see how the Lord was instructing the Israelites to return to Jerusalem through King Cyrus. And the Lord was using King Cyrus to tell them to to go and engage in this reconstruction project so that they could work together as a community of faith. Not only that, uh, you know, not only was he, you know, directing uh, those in captivity to then return to the land of Israel, but he also instructed the remnant who had remained there in the land 
to show their support for this work. As a matter of fact, notice with me again there in verse 4, it's there where King Cyrus declares, whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. In other words, listen, the remnant whom the Lord had left behind there in the land of Israel, there was still a remnant there, they were expected to show support for those returning. They were expected to contribute what they could toward the expenses of those who were returning. And not only that, but the Lord was also leading them to use the wealth that they had retained for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And in this way, the Lord was helping his people to see that they all stood on level ground there at the temple. Think about it for a moment. It would have been easy for the remnant that had remained in Israel to believe that they were better than the families that had been carried away into captivity. The captivity was an evidence of their disobedience. And so the remnant that remained, well, they probably saw themselves as being the righteous ones that God allowed to stay there in the land while the sinners were carried off to captivity. And as the people in captivity returned, it would have been real easy you know, for the remnant to start thinking, ah, we don't want to hang out with these sinners. They've been in Babylon. They've got Babylon cooties. Rather than allowing this sort of division to rise up within this community, the Lord instead raises up Cyrus to provide them with these instructions so that the people of God might be reunited so that relationships could be restored through this reconstruction project. And as we consider these instructions, you know, it would have been really easy for the faithful remnant to just start looking down their nose at those who were returning you know, from captivity. But, but rather than treating them like sinners who didn't deserve a second chance in the land, no, the remnant of Israel, they showed their support according to the instructions that they received. They showed their support. They, they gave financial aid. They served the Lord side by side with those who were returning from Babylon. And I think that's a really great picture for the church. Now, with this as the focus, I want to continue to consider the account that Ezra presents here in chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5, here we learn that the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered." Now here in these verses, we can see how the reconstruction of the temple was, was the work that the Lord was actually using to help restore the relationships of the remnant with those who were returning. And as we can continue to make our way through this book, we'll see how this building project actually helped them to focus their faith so that the people of God might be unified through the service of the Lord. And, and as they began this, uh, this reconstruction project, you know, the people who were there and, and had wealth began to share it with those uh, who were just returning. And, and in light of all this, it's important for us to remember that the Lord loves to use the work of the ministry as a way to unite his people through the relational reconciliation that occurs as we set aside our differences and instead serve our Savior side by side. And, and, and listen, this includes the relational reconciliation that is supposed to take place as we continue serving our Savior, even side by side with those who have offended us. That's right. The Lord is calling us to serve him, even 
side by side with someone who has stepped on our toes or hurt our feelings. Sadly, this is a lesson that seems to be extremely difficult for many Christians to learn and apply. And one reason why is because of foolish pride. It really does come down to that, doesn't it? Foolish pride. Someone steps on our toes and we treat them like we've never stepped on anybody's toes. And how dare they? You know, I've never offended anybody, so how dare you offend me? Really? That's, uh, <laughs> that's quite the opinion you have of yourself. You've never offended anybody? Listen, we've all offended somebody, and, and, and we hope for their forgiveness when we have. Shouldn't we then extend that forgiveness to those who have offended us? It's foolish pride that keeps us from serving alongside those who have stepped on our sensitive toes. And as a result, you know, many Christians uh, will step out of a ministry because they're not going to serve next to that person anymore. You know, others even choose to leave their church because the offense is so great. You know, they looked at you wrong. They said the wrong thing. It was the wrong tone and, you know, enough of those offenses. And it's just kind of like, got to leave the church. Got to go find another church where no one will ever offend me. Really? Nobody? Everyone at that church is perfect? been said, if you find the perfect church, don't go, because it was perfect before you got there. Sadly, though, I can't even tell you how many times I've watched the same thing happen over. Uh, bitterness, unforgiveness, got to go, I'm going to go find a perfect church. And, and a lot of times they just simply fall away. Christian, listen, we've been called to become those believers who are walking in the agape love of the Lord. And one way that we know that we are, in fact, walking in the agape love of the Lord, something to to put yourself to the test, is your desire to reconcile relational strains more important than your desire to protect your sensitivities? If our desire to reconcile every relational strain is allowing us to work with people who have offended us, that is a sign of true Christian maturity. And so we should. We should reconcile every relational strain, you know, the the kind that are bound to occur in any relationship. We should reconcile those relational strains within our fellowship of faith so that we can serve our Savior side by side. And while pride would lead us to think that we don't need to reconcile with those who have offended us, you know, the Lord Jesus has actually called every Christian to the ministry of, of reconciliation, which includes forgiving those who have hurt our feelings. One way that we can do this is by realizing that the Lord has actually called us to be committed to our Christian community, uh, which is filled with imperfect people. It's true. We are all imperfect people. We are all, we are all works in progress. And so we need to be gracious with one another and, and, and allow for, for you know, our imperfect ways. As we make room for each other's imperfections, that provides us then with opportunities to learn how to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, if you never do anything wrong to me, how would I learn how to reconcile with you? And if I never offend you, then how will you learn how to reconcile with me? The Lord has placed us into a community of imperfect, imperfect people and calls us to be committed there so that we don't just run away every single time we get offended. 
If we run away every single time we get offended, if, if we run away every single time our feelings get hurt, we will never learn how to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. We need to learn how to forgive. Therefore, we have to have opportunities to forgive. And as we learn how to forgive, we can continue serving our Savior side by side with those who, you know, like us, still struggle with some sin. That being the case, listen, rather than seeing relational difficulties as evidence of, of it being time to leave or, or a reason to run away or a reason to sever a relationship, listen, the Lord is calling us to learn how to bear with one another, not avoid one another. The Lord is calling us to bear with one another so that we can support one another with the gracious forgiveness that we've received. And as we learn how to forgive those who have offended us, you know, we experience the spiritual maturity that enables us to reconcile with those who have offended us. Now, with this as the goal, I just want to encourage every Christian to remember something that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4. It's here where he declares, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Simply put, listen, the, the Lord is calling us to remember that we've been called to bear with one another in love. And we are to endeavor in this. In other words, we have to be working hard to maintain this unity by which the Holy Spirit makes us a Christian congregation and then uses the, the, the service opportunities and the work that's here to bring us together, to give us something to focus on so that we're not focused on you know, all the offenses. If you've been allowing a heart filled with unforgiveness to lead you to think that you know, it's time to leave your fellowship of faith because you know, that's just the, the straw that broke the camel's back on that one, no, 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 listen. I encourage you to remember we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of bitter unforgiveness. If you are engaging in the ministry of bitter unforgiveness, well, that's the enemy. That's the enemy's ministry. That's the flesh's ministry. The ministry that Christ gave you is the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, I encourage you, replace your grudge with grace so that we can serve our Savior side by side. We should also consider the way in which the Lord is able to bless his people when we choose to set aside our differences so that we can serve him together. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 7, here we learn that King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400 all these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Ezra. He's describing the way in which King Cyrus blessed the people of God. He blessed them as he set them free. And, and he did this by restoring all of the temple treasures that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. Uh, unfortunately, 
This didn't include the most significant articles of the temple, like the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the brazen altar, <clears throat> the, uh, the golden lampstand, and the Ark of the Covenant. These articles were believed to have been you know, lost to history at the time when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. It's possible that these are the articles that Ezra mentions in, in, in 2 Kings chapter 24. Uh, there we learn that there were some articles that were cut in pieces after they were taken from the temple. Uh, and so maybe you know, the, the larger articles that were uh, cumbersome and, and you know, hard to carry, maybe they were cut into pieces on the spot and melted down at some point. We don't, we don't, we don't really know what happened. But, uh, but what we do know is that King Cyrus returned the articles that he had acquired when he rose up and conquered Babylon. And, and, and he restored this wealth that had been taken from the temple treasuries he restored it to the people of God as, as he sent them back to their freedom. Now, with this in mind, I want to spend a few minutes just considering the, the difference between King Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and King Cyrus. King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah and carried away captives, while King Cyrus allowed them to return to the land of their inheritance. King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple of God and carried away the spoils of war while King Cyrus restored their wealth and instructed them to rebuild the temple of God. King Nebuchadnezzar enslaved the children of Israel, while King Cyrus set them free. Now, which one would you say is the servant of the Lord? And the answer is both of them. Both of them were accomplishing God's will. And while it's true that King Cyrus is seen as the ruler who you know, was the, the servant of God and the one that accomplished the will of the Lord, listen, the same can be said about King Nebuchadnezzar. As a matter of fact, you know, we already saw this uh, previously in Jeremiah, but I'll, I'll remind you, in, in Jeremiah 27, the Lord actually says this, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom... It seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field I have also given to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Wow. The God of Israel was the one who raised up the king of Babylon. The God of Israel is the one who directed all the nations to submit to him. The God of Israel is the one who called for sword, famine, and pestilence upon any nation that wouldn't submit to Nebuchadnezzar and to his son and to his son's son. Now, it's easy for us to celebrate leaders like Cyrus who you know, make it their aim to bless the people of God and, and to send them out with, with, with treasure. Yeah, we think, oh, that's the, that's the servant of God. That, the one that, that brought me the blessings. That's, that's the one that's obedient to God. 
And yet we must not lose sight of the fact that the Lord also raises up kings like Nebuchadnezzar to punish, to to bring people to the end of themselves, to bring nations to their knees. The Lord is the one who raises up the pharaohs of the earth in order to bring his people to a point of repentance. With that being the case, you know, Christians here in America would do, do well to remember that there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that are exist, the, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And that's true whether you like the authority or not. Now, we love it when our leaders are blessing the people of faith. We love it when our leaders are supporting the church and, and, and giving us liberty and freedom. And yet it's also important to realize that the Lord is the one who also raises up the Nebuchadnezzars and the Pharaohs and the Herods. And he does this when he recognizes that it's time to bring his people to repentance. In light of this truth, we should take a moment to ask, is God now raising up rulers who are leading us into the blessings of liberty? Or is the Lord raising up rulers who are carrying us away into captivity? If the latter is true in your opinion, then what does that say about the church? If it's your opinion that that right now we are under a Nebuchadnezzar or a Pharaoh or a Herod, if it's your opinion that we're currently under a Nero, what does that say about the people of God? I would remind you of something that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6. It's there where he declares, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap, uh, will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Christian, listen, whatever the seed is that we're sowing into the spiritual soil of our lives today, that seed will eventually produce fruit. For better or for worse. And as the church is sowing seed today, because that's what we've been called to do, right? To go out and scatter seed. Well, what kind of seed is the church sowing today? Because whatever seed we're sowing today, don't plant you know, apple seeds thinking that you're going to produce lemons. And, and don't plant durian seed and, and think you're going to end up with figs. Whatever seed the church is sowing today, we're eventually going to reap that fruit. Well, with that being the case, what kind of fruit are we reaping today? Because that'll tell us a whole lot about what kind of seed we were planting recently. 
everything happening to the church here in America today is fruit that we are reaping from the seed that we planted. Some are insisting it's all Trump's fault. Trump ruined it all. Others, you know, blame Biden. Well, you know, he had it for eight years before Trump and now has it for another year after that. And look where we are. I'm still blaming Carter, personally. Isn't the Lord the one who appointed these leaders? I get it. I mean, we get the right to vote. We, you know, we, we, we go and cast our vote for the narrow field of people before us. But doesn't the Bible say that there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God? And I'm here to tell you, we get the leaders we deserve. If you feel like we're suffering under the tyranny of a Nebuchadnezzar right now, then I remind you, this is the Lord's way of leading his people to repent. So rather than pointing the finger and saying, well, it's that leader, this leader did it. It's their fault. It's these policies. Yes, directly, but indirectly, it's God's way of saying, I'm trying to get your attention right now. You need to repent. With that, I can't help but to remember the promise that the Lord presented to the Israelites in Second Chronicles chapter 7. It's there where he declares, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, as we consider this promise that the Lord was making to the children of Israel, I have no doubt that, that we serve the same God, and the same God, I believe, will also bless our nation if the Christian church here in America would simply humble themselves, if we would simply spend more time praying and seeking the face of our Savior. And listen, if Christians would turn away from the woke nonsense that's being embraced by so many churches... And if instead we would simply get back to the great commission of Christ Jesus, well, I have no doubt that the Lord will provide us with the leaders who will enable us to walk in the liberty of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can continue to serve him side by side as we work out the ministry of reconciliation in our own relationships. So that's my encouragement to the church, especially the church here in America. To recognize that the Lord gives us the leaders we deserve. And all of this is the fruit of the seed we planted. And it might just be that we've been planting some bad seed for quite some time. And if that's the case, then let's turn that around. Let's start planting the right seed. Let's get back to the Great Commission. Let's humble ourselves and let's seek the Lord and let's repent and pray and ask the Lord to heal our land. I believe that if the church here in America would do that, the Lord would bless it with righteous leaders who can guide us into the perfect will of God. Let's pray.